Okay. So, oh, Manami. Oh, my gosh. So good to see you, Manami. Hi. Hi, Bernie. Oh, my God. Thanks for doing this. Sorry, I'm at work at the hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In San Francisco, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So nice to see you. So great to see you. Wow. It's it's been amazing how, like, you know, just um, this group comes from all over the place. Um, And uh, it's it's something that I think... um, it's, it's very, it feels very special to me. Um, so good evening, everyone. Um, I am thrilled to be here, well, to be well enough to be here and to see you all. Um, I, uh, I, yeah, I've missed, I've missed this group. I've missed sitting with you all um, and especially over the roller coaster ride that has been our um, political reality over the last, I mean, it's really <laughs> last four years, but like last month in particular. Um, and um, I think I want to say that I'm, oh, so later in the evening, as I, you know, we'll see how time goes, you know, but as I said in my email, my plan is to open the floor for people to share whatever they want, frankly. Um, and, um, but that will be a time where if people feel moved to talk about the ways in which practice has, or perhaps has not served them um, well, or in the ways they would like in the face of our political realities and the stresses it's causing, that would be a wonderful moment for, for people to share about that. I think, um, I think it's important. It's, it's even if they're, you know, I think it's it's just good to see and to hear each other, to, to to know we're not alone, right? I think that that alone, and maybe there are questions or things that um, people would like to ask others um, about how you've dealt with this or that. I have to say, one of the upsides of being concussed is I haven't been glued to a TV. You know, I, I get most of my news secondhand, filtered through. Um, my wife and kids, and I actually kind of recommend it. <laughs> um, it's, uh, and so I actually, you know, yeah, it's, and it's bad, it's, it's bad enough getting it that way, but <laughs> it's, uh, um, yeah. So, um, but I think what I wanted to say is, I don't think beyond sort of, I, I mean, what you're hearing me do is acknowledge the background, again, you know, against which I think, any kind of practice and a cushion is taking place right now that that um, we have been going through unprecedented and pretty terrifying political events. And though I think um, many of you like me found, um, you know, just the calling of the election on Saturday and the, the um, celebration event Saturday night in Wilmington, um, a relief at the very least and, and perhaps cathartic, um, I think, I don't think any of us believe that the drama is over, right? And so um, so I just want to acknowledge that that is the background. At the same time, I think I'm not going to speak directly to it beyond acknowledging this in, the, in this opening moment, because frankly, I don't think I'm adequate to the moment. I don't think I could say something that wouldn't sound, frankly, that I, I just, yeah, that would be worth listening to, you know, that would, um, and that I wouldn't feel perhaps embarrassed about saying in retrospect, you know, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm as kind of like, you know, yeah. I mean, I, at the same time, I'm going to speak in a moment about something that seems more narrowly about practice. I mean, um, not explicitly about politics, but in my heart, in my mind, everything I say about practice, even when it's not referring to the political moment, is meant to, to in some way, touch it. Like give us, it's, it's to speak to it in some way. So I just want you to know that. But beyond that, I'm not going to try to key everything to like some political anxiety or some some thought that we might be having about this moment. Um, yeah, I think it's okay. So I'll just I'll. I'll I'll stop there with that one particular point, but we sh- let's pick it up later as a group, you know. Um, but I just don't have. It's like, who am I to say something really, you know, 
um, meaningful, useful about that. Um, I'm in just in the boat with all of you, you know, so I'd actually be more interested in hearing from you all, just how you've been feeling and how you've been dealing. Um, so, um, so I actually have three different mini practices that I want to go over tonight. None of them will be new to people who are regulars. Um, but I think it might be like a nice just to go over them. Um, and the first practice is going to be about settling, settling the mind and the body. The second practice will be opening the heart, both to ourselves and to others. And the third practice will be about awareness, mindfulness, or what you might call it clear seeing. Um, and I want to begin um, these three, introduce these three practices by actually um, uh, saying a bit about a, a, a wonderful visit that I had to my class uh, just a couple weeks ago um, from by a former student. Um, some of you may know her, Sarah Fleming. She graduated in uh, 2018. And she is now in her third year at the Divinity School at Harvard. Um, and she is trained to be a hospital chaplain. Um, and um, as part of chaplaincy training, people do um, what's called CPE or clinical pastoral education that usually takes place in hospitals. And so you sign up for um, a unit of CPE and that involves having 400 clinical and sort of educational hours, um, usually spread out over six months, where um, you basically learn how to be a chaplain um, just by walking the floors, knocking on patients' doors, asking the patients or their family members um, if they'd like to talk to a chaplain. Um, and as Sarah said, actually like five out of six people will say no, and that's actually a hard part of the job. Um, but, but once in a while people will say, yes, I'd like that. Or a family member would say, yes, I'd like that. Or uh, a staff member at the hospital, a nurse or a doctor will say, yes, please. Uh, in fact, one of the things that she does regularly is when a patient dies, she goes, um, and you hear it on the PA system and you immediately go to the place where the patient has died so you can provide pastoral care, um, just be present at this place where, you know, if it was a code, you know, like maybe like 30 to 40 different people might've been involved. And if any of those people want to just like chat a bit or just um, process this grief, um, uh, even if it's just for a minute, um, she's available to help do that. Um, so, so we had a unit on death and dying in my class on Zen and American culture. And um, it was interesting, actually the most lively energetic discussion of any of the units um, that uh, we did this, this semester. It's in, and actually a bunch of them said, if I taught an entire class on death and dying, that they would take it. Um, and um, that's actually surprised me um, pleasantly, but still was surprising. Um, I think that the, um, the students, all 28 of them were eager to talk about it, but I think they needed upsetting in which it didn't seem awkward or strange to talk about these deep issues that I think, you know, weighed on them. And especially now, right, with COVID and everything in the air. But, um, but, uh, but I think that it was important to create the structure, the setting in which we could have that conversation. It wasn't just like with their their dorm mates or something where it might seem like kind of weird or difficult to bring things like that up. In any case, Sarah came um, and she spoke about chaplaincy. And I asked her to say a bit about how does Buddhist practice, meditation practice inform your practice as you work as a chaplain? And she, um, she answered by telling a story from the Diamond Sutra in which one of the Buddhist disciples had asked the Buddha, a hundred years from now, millennia from now, will people remember the Buddha's teachings? And the Buddha said to Shibuti, banish the thought. Don't, don't worry about my teachings and whether they will survive. Well, people will remember 
And what they will say is, I was seen by the Buddha. The Buddha saw me. Um, and she told the story because what she was trying to get across is that the essence of chaplaincy um, is giving people an opportunity to feel seen, to, to see people. Um, it's, the, it's perhaps one of the greatest gifts you can give someone in, who is in crisis or nearing the end of their life is to give them the experience of feeling seen, seeing them. Um, and she said, sometimes it's hard. Um, sometimes you might see a burn victim whose entire face is, is burned where there's actually like a kind of, you know, you have to have to have some kind of control over yourself so you don't flinch, you don't look away. Um, and, um, and so I thought that was a beautiful way of, you know, addressing both the essence of practice in a way and, and I think the essence of chaplaincy. So I'd often thought to myself of chaplaincy as uh, about the practice of presence, just being present with people. But I think this is a, a wonderful, slightly different way of putting it. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up is because after Sarah came, it occurred to me that one of the reasons I think we practice the kind of seeing that is mindfulness is because if we can't look at some aspect of ourselves and not flinch in the way that Sarah was saying, it can be hard not to do when looking at, for example, a burn victim. If we can't see that part of ourselves that we are, you know, loathe to experience or acknowledge or admit is even there, that shame, that desire that we don't want to have or whatever it is, it will to that extent be difficult at least and perhaps impossible to see that in others without flinching as well. So I think that in this moment when the world and its suffering and its needs call so powerfully upon us, it can seem narcissistic and self-indulgent, almost beside the point from a certain perspective to be engaged in a practice like meditation or mindfulness. Like I should be out there, you know, what, what am I doing here on the cushion? You know, I should be out there protesting, engaging in some other kind of political activity, doing something worldly, right? And I sympathize with that thought. I've had that thought, but I think that this connection of seeing ourselves and seeing others is one of the ways in which actually what we're doing isn't actually just about ourselves, but opening to ourselves so we can be more fully open to others. And I think it's a fantasy to think that we can have all these shadows running amok in ourselves, things that we don't want to acknowledge or look at, and think that we can engage with the world and not transmit that aversion, that flinching, that suffering, you know? So if we want actually to produce peace in the world, clarity in the world, I think it's incumbent upon us to produce that peace and clarity in ourselves. They go together. It's not two. They are, they are one. Um, and so, you know, I've had students in my class who are meditating, many of them for the first time, who are starting to see things. Things come up when you meditate, as you all know. And, you know, and there's something like, I'm not sure I want to see this. I've gotten along really well for 20 years by boxing this up and coping by not admitting, not, 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 not really processing these feelings. You know, I, maybe just let's like keep them, keep them boxed up, you know. But if it was just us, just each of us individually, that might work. I don't think so. <laughs> it might. But I think the problem is that it's not just us. You know, so that thing in myself that I can't admit that comes from my vexed relationship with my parents, right? I've seen 
to my regret and remorse, the ways in which I transmitted that trauma and that pain to my children. You know, you just, you, 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 everything that isn't seen clearly ends up being communicated to others in the way you interact, sometimes wordlessly, you know, in your body language, in what you won't speak about. Um, so, um, but I think another beautiful thing about Sarah's little story is that it already implies really clearly without sort of like making a big deal of this, that this seeing is not clinical seeing. This isn't the seeing of like objective microscope examine your shit kind of seeing, right? If this seeing isn't done with warmth and love and compassion, then it's not the kind of seeing that one of the people she visits in the hospital will find healing, right? So, um, so it's not just about like working on our stuff, you know, in some kind of like gritty way, you know, but can we see with a warm light what is to be seen? So heart and mindfulness must go together. Um, and I think, you know, that these tools can help us individually cope and can help us be the agents of peace and compassion this world so badly needs right now. Um, so much so that I feel like completely kind of overwhelmed and inadequate to the moment, but this is all I know to offer. So, um, so, um, so let's begin, okay? Um, please get in a position that's comfortable. And there are gonna be pauses between these three practices. The first one's gonna be very brief, settling. The second one, the loving kindness practice, I'm actually gonna be able to have, involve a little reflection. It's gonna be different than a straight up practice. And Alex, you'll see why when I get to it. I've actually had some revelations about loving kindness practice over the last month. Um, and then um, mindfulness, we'll do a practical bit of mindfulness at the end, okay. Um, so please get in a position in which you can breathe freely or as freely as you feel capable of right now. Because of course, it wouldn't be surprising if we're carrying a bit of tension in our chest, in our belly. It wouldn't be surprising if the breath, in fact, doesn't feel totally free and loose right now. So have your backside be straight so it's not scrunching over and collapsing the front so that the chest and the belly can move. And then please inhale deeply through your nose. Feel your torso fill up with air and exhale slowly through your slightly open mouth, drawing your out breath out, nice and slow. Breathe in through the nose, deeply, slowly. Breathe out through the mouth, slowly, drawing the exhalation out. And please just take a few more of these deep in-breaths through the nose and out breaths through your slightly open mouth. And with each long exhalation, feel the body begin to settle into the moment. And now let your breath come and go at its own natural rhythm, no longer manipulating the breath to be deep and slow. And breathe in and out through the nose. And just let the breath be however it wants to be. It might be shallow, 
It might be quick, it might be erratic, or it might be deeper and slower. If you feel yourself exercising any control over the breath, and you feel able to let that control go, let it go. And if for some reason it's not possible to let go of the control, and that's not uncommon, then just notice that. Notice the feeling of controlling the breath. And now with each exhalation, please count one and then two with the next exhalation, all the way up to 10. And if you lose track of the count, just start back at one. It's not about getting anywhere just using the count to help you stay focused on the breath. Some people like to count the number just once, like one. Some people like to count one, one, one throughout the course of the entire exhalation. Try out both and see which one feels better to you. Neither is correct or wrong. If thoughts pull you away, just notice that they have and come gently back to the breath and to the count. And if you've lost the count, just start at one, no big deal. Now let yourself drop the breath counting and don't even focus narrowly on the breath anymore. As we transition to the next practice, let's take a moment just to scan some parts of the body and see if we're holding any tension. So bring your awareness to your buttocks, your glutes, and just feel what sensations you find there. If you encounter any tension or holding, or even achiness or soreness, don't try to push it away. Don't try to force your muscles to relax, but rather let whatever you find, any tension or holding, be there. But soften your awareness around the sensations you find. And you might discover that sensations that you just let be there, sometimes on their own, let go, release. And if that happens, just observe how that feels.
Now bring your awareness to your belly and feel in the belly whatever sensations are associated with the breath, but also all the other kinds of sensations that we can find in the belly. Feelings of tension, energy, excitement, anxiety. As the belly moves with the breath, just feel how those sensations change moment by moment. And any time you encounter a sensation that feels uncomfortable, unpleasant, that you notice you have some aversion to, just notice that. And then soften your awareness around the sensations. And now the last place I'd like you to scan is the center of your chest, the sternum area. Feel the sensations in the sternum area, the breastbone area, that are associated with the breath. As this bone, this part of your chest, rises and falls, notice what sensations are there. For some of you, it might feel very tight and tense, almost even rock hard. Just notice that with as much gentleness as possible. For others of you, this area may feel very raw, tender. Just notice that. For others, they may feel warm, perhaps even open, spacious. Just notice that. No way it needs to be, no way it should be. It's all about just experiencing the sensations as they are. And perhaps breath after breath, moment by moment, some of those sensations shift, if only slightly. Notice any changes you might be experiencing in the chest as well as you follow the breath here. Now I'm going to just speak for a bit. Feel free to open your eyes if you like, or to stay with your eyes closed in a sitting posture. But I'd like you to keep your awareness, even as you listen to my words, on the center of the chest, which I also like to call the heart space because it's a place that's associated with a lot of deep emotion, a lot of grief, a lot of fear, it's one of the reasons why I can feel tender and raw. It's also one of the reasons why I can feel very tight as we try to clamp down on the emotions that we can experience there. So I wanna um, say just a bit about meta or loving kindness practice now. So um, There are four like sort of basic lines um, that I'm gonna offer tonight that I actually just take from Sharon Salzberg, who is a meditation teacher 
who was, I think, especially well known for teaching loving kindness practice. Um, and so they are, may I be safe? May I be happy? May I be healthy? And may I live with ease? Of course, as the practice continues, you offer that to someone else, then a larger group of others, and eventually all beings. May all beings be safe. May all beings be happy, etc. Now, um, I think the one thing that I want to sort of say as we move into a few minutes of this practice is that it's worth reflecting on the lines a bit actually find, experimenting to see which lines do and do not resonate with you. I think I've often done this practice kind of mechanically. I mean, I've admitted to this group many times, actually loving kindness practice is a practice I resisted for like years. Um, I found it much harder than just straight up awareness or mindfulness practice, you know, like being kind of like, almost clinically, objectively aware of what's going through my mind and body. Yeah, that I can get behind, you know, but this felt kind of mushy and soft. And I think the truth is I just had a lot of emotion. I didn't want to start facing <laughs> that would open up. Um, but any case, you know, so, um, but when I did start doing it, I started, it's like, you know, it was kind of mechanical. Okay. These are lines, maybe happy, maybe peaceful, maybe free from suffering. Right. You know, um, and you know, they could work. They sometimes were very, could work very powerfully. But over the last four weeks, spurred on by suggestion I heard Sharon Salzberg make, I actually started to think about what these lines actually mean to me and which lines seem especially meaningful to me. And I actually want, to, in case some of you may already have done this, because I think it's like not, it's like, not like, super crazy thing to think to do, but I think it just shows that I was a hard sell. I kind of like did it reluctantly and I kind of did it mechanically when I started doing it. Um, but um, like, what does it mean to you to be safe? What does it mean to you when to say to yourself, may I be happy? What is deep, genuine safety feel like? What is authentic, genuine happiness actually like? That obviously has to be much deeper and different from the kind of fleeting emotion, right, that we experience when certain things make us happy in passing. What kind of happiness could encompass the grief and the sorrow and the suffering that's also a part of life? Um, I think for each of us, some of these lines will mean more than others. Some may not mean much at all. And other lines may actually other than these four may mean everything to us. So what I wanna suggest, and so not something we can exactly just do tonight, is over the next you know, week or few weeks that you actually experiment with different ones. What I discovered is that may I be safe was the key to all of the others. Because I've known for a while that one of my deepest belief thoughts that comes up in all different kinds of settings is that I am not safe. I will have this, like just something will happen. Something will set me off. It could be in a department meeting. It could be teaching. It could be something with my wife, right? And I'll just be like filled with adrenaline or just some deep, kind of like low level unease. And when I have enough clarity to label the thought, to see it, I'll, I'll can see clearly at one of the deepest thoughts that I believe 
is I am not safe. Um, and so when I sort of thought about that line, may I be safe, and really thought about what safety means to me and its importance in my life and how scarce it ha has felt, the line unlocked something. And now when I say it and really say it like with this understanding of the deeper safety that I yearn for, I long for, and that I can wish for myself, all the other lines fall into place. Because of course happiness involves safety. How all these things, anyway. So I'm actually not saying this because I think it would work for others. I think the whole point is that each of us has our own. You know, maybe it's, may I be free from suffering? May I dwell in the open heart? May I, um, may I experience the awakened mind? I mean, I think there's nothing magic about any other particular words. I think it's finding the phrase, the sentiment that works for you. And I think it only has to be even like one or two. Um, and just using that as a way of getting into this practice where you can wish yourself genuine well-being, whatever that may mean for you. Um, so let's just do a few, like rounds of wishing ourselves the basic lines that I started with. But please know that if it doesn't work for you, um, it might be worth experimenting with others over the course of the next few days or weeks. Because um, then maybe that if these don't work, maybe it's just that the right phrasing hasn't occurred to you yet, or that you haven't reflected on the way you mean these words like happiness health okay so um so please um reassume your sitting posture and bring your awareness to the heart space the center of the chest and to begin just be aware of the sensations of the breath in the center of the chest And if you experience any tension or tightness in this chest area, it's so important that you know that it's not about making this area feel some particular way. If it's tight, try to accept that tightness with compassion. If your heart feels closed, try to accept that with as much compassion and love as possible. Sometimes just really tuning in to how tight and closed your own heart is can be enough to begin to break that heart open. But it means not fighting it. It means actually embracing fully how tight and closed it is. So please repeat silently the following lines to yourself, directing the sentiments these words express towards yourself as deeply and fully as you are capable of. May I be safe. And you'll be okay to pause and even reflect a bit on the ways in which you do and do not feel safe, have or perhaps have not ever felt safe. Can you wish for yourself 
deep, genuine abiding safety, inner and outer. May I be safe. And now, may I be happy. And what would deep, lasting, authentic happiness look like for you? Can you wish it for yourself, genuinely? If so, do. But if not, contemplate the stinginess or the closeness of your own heart to yourself, that you can't even wish yourself genuinely happiness. See that. Feel that. And have compassion for that very tightness. May I be healthy. Or may I be healed. Both from the illnesses of the body and of the heart and the mind. And then finally, may I live with ease. Think of how much time we've spent, especially lately, tight, anxious, unable to feel the flow of life. Can you wish for yourself, even just moments, stretches of time, where you can live with ease at one with the flow of life? Imagine that. Now, please just bring to mind someone for whom you feel deep, abiding love and care. Someone who's been there for you and for whom you feel deep gratitude. And we'll end with just one round directed to this person we care so deeply for. Thinking of this person bringing their presence or image to mind, please say to yourself, may you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. If they are ill, let them be healed. And if they are healthy, wish that they remain so. And may you live with ease. Okay.
So I'm going to hold off on the mindfulness component that I was going to um, turn to next and focus on that next Tuesday. Um, I encourage you to try mixing up the heart practice with the awareness practices that we've done here on other nights and to see how the quality of care that some of you may have been able to kind of cultivate um, warm softness through the heart practice can inform the awareness so that we can see not with cold eyes, but with eyes that are genuinely um, accepting and loving, um, which is what makes genuine healing possible. So I think now um, I actually want to do the thing that I'm, I'm most eager to tonight, which is open the floor to hear anything anyone would like to share, ask about. Um, yeah. So please feel free to unmute yourself. I can't see everyone on the screen at one time. So if you're waving your hand, I may not be able to see you, just so you know. So just go ahead and unmute. And if there are any questions. So great. I'm sorry. It's so, oh, so great to see you again, Bernie. And so many things resonated. Um, choosing as well not to say anything about the politics going on. Um, but I'm a retired oncologist. So the importance of witnessing and being present for people in that situation recalled so many moments and I appreciate that. Um, there's more to explore on that for me in terms of some grief I'm holding. Um, also the moment you touched upon when you're not seeing your own inner workings, clearly you then do harm without intending to as a parent and really as a being. I thought that was important to linger on. And I appreciated both versions of meditations because um, they were both very calming and comforting in very, very different ways. So thank you. Thank you, Smetha, and, so, and wonderful to see you. I haven't meditated in quite a while and I don't remember ever doing the heart practice before and it struck me how much easier the second part of it was like directed towards someone else than the one directed towards yourself. I think just because it feels strange and wishing those things for yourself as if you didn't couldn't control them, right? Like the image that you conjure up there are things that one could do to get yourself there in some cases. And it's weird wishing it as if you weren't, you didn't have the agency to change those things. And so, and so you know, Emma, it's, it's, it's totally common for people to have a much harder time directing those um, lines to oneself than to others. In fact, some people have suggested starting with the other and then turning them to oneself, you know? Um, and what you said about the reason why that's interesting, you know, like um, that's that well, you could do something about it. Right. So, so, um, and um, so, yeah, that that's, there's a lot to explore there, but I just want to say like, it's, it's, it's very common. Um, and actually you might try just starting with the second person and then see if going to the first person is a little easier. 
and um, um, yeah. I agree. And I found it really helpful and interesting to linger on the different phrases um, and to know that everybody was kind of thinking about them differently for themselves was really interesting and helpful. Um, for instance, for me, I found the happiness one to be particularly, I don't know, I was just resistant to it. And I don't think it was the concept so much as like my own baggage around the term. Like I was like happiness, but that's fleeting. I want like more, I want peace or joy or so. I don't know, it was just really interesting to kind of think about that and the weight of directing that towards yourself um, as Emma was saying. And I think if a word just has baggage, it may be simpler to, and, and fine to not use that word, you know? Um, um, in fact, I mean, the words that Salzburg um, suggests are um, themselves not the traditional words, you know, like one of the traditional, like for, the traditional phrases are like, may I be free of inner and outer suffering. And people said that, like, that you know, that seems so, so heavy, you know, it makes me, and so I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll find some other word. Cause she's, and she's very clear. It's like the words aren't the key, right? It's, um, it's what, what, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. The happiness one is actually maybe the one that, then I think like, but why can't I at least wish myself? <laughs> So I was like, simply because like, it's like, God, seems so light. Why not? You know, as a challenge to myself. Am I? So. Uh, what, when I, also, I, I, I think about very specific instances when I was happy or when I felt safe. And um, for me, that works better than, than, you know, getting into very heavy thoughts about what is happiness and yeah. what is safety, but to get, but I, I like being able to conjure up that sense of what did it feel like when I felt healthy, when I, when I felt happy. Yeah. Someone else was saying something. I don't know. I didn't catch who it was. It was just me. I was going to make an English professor joke that I overanalyze words anyway. So I appreciated <laughs> John's comment too about the memories. Yeah. 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 And in fact, that's one of the reasons to bring up the other person first, like someone you care deeply about, because it immediately activates in this non-intellectual way, the feeling of just caring for someone, right? Instead of thinking about compassion or, you know, loving kindness and abstraction as abstractions. Actually, when I started um, trying to think about um, safety, mm. I, I was just so struck by how my, my, my white privilege has kept me so, so safe in so many ways. And um, black indigenous people of color don't have my privilege of safety. And then I started thinking, well, wow, isn't that what heart practice is, is to realize how interdependent it all is. Because as a woman, I also share a loss of, of sense of safety with all women. So I, I don't know. I don't know if that's getting way too heady for this. But it, it seemed to really open my heart to everyone. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's heady. It seems makes total sense as coming up right now, um, Carrie. And I... Um, and I think that, you know, the takeaway can't be like, I don't deserve it, you know, because other people don't have it, right? It's like, why do, why can't everyone have this? And also, I mean, I think um, the kind of safety that you're talking about with white privilege is a very fragile kind of safety built upon like, you know, forms of violence. And so it's not exactly safe in the way that it tries to pretend to be either. So um, I think there, um, and I think you start to see how it's like, yeah, if everyone doesn't feel safe, it's like, it's not gonna work for anyone, right? There's this interdependent, like liberation for all or for none. Um, I think you can wake you up to that at a visceral level. I also had a question because it, it suddenly struck me um, 
because I'm still reading My Grandmother's Hands by mm. Reza Menachem. And he talks about the vagus nerve and um, some of the things he um, wrote about that as the soul nerve. Well, my goodness, isn't it right around the, the area you're talking about for the heart practice? That I, I think, I'm no anatomy. You're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> Actually, Smitha might be able to help us. She's the oncologist. Um, um, but but I will say that actually, um, he talks a lot in that book about the importance of cultivating practices that help you settle the nervous system, right? Settling practices. And the first practice that I offered um, is, is a parasympathetic breathing practice, right? In through the nose, out through the, uh, the, um, through the mouth intended to help settle the nervous system, um, sort of deactivate the fight or flight response. Um, so it's definitely connected to the some of the stuff he's, you know, he's talking about. It's like, it's um, one of the, yeah, one of the things that we can do for each other is help settle each other's energy, you know, and he actually has this, if you have, if those of you who haven't read My Grandmother's Hands, it's, I, it's, I recommend it, you know, but he talks about even like, you know, when you have sort of protests or um, activist events set up, you know, there's, there should be spaces for people who to go to help settle, you know, their energy. Um, and people who are especially skilled at cultivating that kind of settled quality um, as, you know, roles that people can take. Um, so it's, it's fascinating stuff, yeah. For those who don't have time to read the book, he has a podcast with um, Krista Tippett on being and um, with Dan Harris and the 10% Happier app that uh, both give you kind of a quick hit of what his his take on intergenerational racial trauma is. Um, it's, it's really wonderful stuff. Um, So can we sit together for two minutes to end the evening um, with quiet? And I, and I think I just, um, I, I'm just so glad to know that I will see if not all, many of you next week, and that we'll have, you know, just, I think the things that we are feeling and want to say have time to emerge, you know, and um, thank you to those who shared words tonight, but um, thank you all for just um, sharing your being. It's, um, it's uh, incredibly heartening to me. And I guess, um, I just feel just really grateful for this group. So thank you all for being and for being here. Um, I will sit for just a couple minutes and then I will signal the end and then we can say good night. <clears throat>
Thank you all for being here tonight. It is truly wonderful to see you all. And I'll look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. And in case anyone's wondering, feels good. Feels good up here. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bernie. Glad